If you could turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea, and uh, just to, to remind you that uh, you come to the major prophets and then you come to the minor prophets. So if you look up Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then Daniel, and then you have the book of Hosea. Brooke uh, recited all the books of the Bible this morning. I never had that privilege when I was young. Uh, I, I remember when the, going to church for the first time and the pastor announced that he was preaching from the book of Daniel. I was so embarrassed that I couldn't find the book of Daniel uh, in the Old Testament. I was flicking back and forth. So it's a good practice to memorize the, uh, the books of the Bible or, or even just look it up in the index. Never be embarrassed to do that. So uh, Hosea, uh, we're continuing our studies in the book of Hosea. We come this evening to Hosea chapter 12, but we'll begin to read in chapter 11 and verse 12. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the day of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation to the Lord, to his Lord, uh, has given bitter provocation, sorry, so the Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own word. History uh, said uh, Henry T. Ford uh, is bunk. The history is that history is irrelevant to the present generation as an ashtray on a motorbike, that it serves no useful purpose and is a complete waste of time and space. Sorry to those who study history, who teach history, and to those who love history. But it was Henry T. Ford that said, history is bunk. But how wrong he was. Civilization, even industrial manufacturing, can only truly advance 
when it profits from the experiences and the discoveries of previous generations. Indeed, an ignorance of history is not only foolish but dangerous. It was the philosopher of the 19th century, John Santana, who said, uh, George Santana, who said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Without history, we just go on making the same old mistakes. If you forgive the pun on the title of the film, it's not so much a case of back to the future, but forward to the past. And that principle applies not only to science and politics and to industry, but also to the people of God. And that was what Hosea is dealing with, or that is what Hosea is dealing with uh, in Hosea uh, chapter 12. The people of Israel had forgotten their history. Their collective memory had failed. They were uh, suffering from amnesia, from national dementia. That meant they were repeating the same old mistakes of previous generations. And so in chapter 12, Hosea the prophet gives them two short history lessons, one from the life of Jacob and the other from the life of Moses. And what I want to do this evening is to approach both those historical situations with the same outline. We want to look back, uh, sorry, to look at the current situation of Hosea's day. Then we can want to consider the point that Hosea makes from their history and then try to examine the lessons that they and us can learn from that history. So our outline is to be the situation that Hosea addressed, the history that Hosea analyzed, and then the lesson that Hosea applied. Hosea is convinced that Israelite society is on a road to destruction because they failed to remember the past. Remember your history, he says, and be taught For the alternative to remembering is repeating, repeating the same old mistakes of the past. And he deals with two particular issues that were um, uh, 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 issues of the time uh, that uh, Hosea was ministering, the futility of dishonesty and the danger of prosperity. So first of all, the futility of dishonesty. Uh, Look at verse 2. Uh, Hosea says, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. On at least two previous occasions, Hosea employs courtroom imagery to make the point uh, that Israel is the defendant in the dock. Uh, God is the plaintiff, the prosecutor, and the judge. Now, this is legal language. If you're using the authorized version, it says controversy, but the NIV translates it as charge. The Lord has a charge against you. The ESV, the Lord has an indictment against you. That language comes straight from the courtroom. Hosea charges both Judah and Jacob. Jacob, remember, was another name for Uh, Israel, because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So when he talks about Judah and Jacob, he's referring to the two tribes of Judah that were in the south and the ten tribes of Israel in the north, all twelve tribes. Now, this charge has to do with their dishonesty, religiously, politically, and commercially, uh, that they were a dishonest people. Uh, Look at, first of all, their Uh, uh, guilt in terms of commercial deception. Look at verse 7. 
a merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Now, that word oppress, he loves to oppress, means to oppress by taking advantage of. We might say uh, exploiting. The NIV translates it as defrauding. The New Living Translation translates it as cheat. It's taking advantage of someone through deception. In fact, there's a pun in verse 7, a play on words that our versions don't accurately capture. The word translated merchant is actually the word for Canaanite. And in those days, the word Canaanite uh, sort of adopted a double meaning, much in the way that Tinker uh, did in the uh, 19th century or Gypsy has in the 20th century. The picture that Hosea is painting is of a crafty uh, Arab trader with his crooked weights in one hand and his short change in the other. However, as you approach this crafty Canaanite trader, you discover that he's not an Arab at all, that he's a Jew, that he's an Israelite, that things had got so bad uh, uh, during Hosea's um, uh, ministry that you couldn't tell the difference between the people of God and a pagan when it came to business. You might as well go and buy a second-hand donkey from Derek Trotter or Arthur Daly than from a, a Jew. You might as well get a, a gypsy who calls at your door to tar your drive than employ a Christian contractor who owns a tarmac company. You'll get a higher standard of honesty in that deal than you will uh, from the Christian. The people were commercially dishonest. Secondly, they were politically dishonest. Look at verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence and make a covenant with Assyria. And oil is carried to Egypt. This verse is a reference to the political double-dealing that was going on during Hosea's ministry. The king of Israel paid tribute to the king of Assyria, and in the very next breath, he plotted rebellion against him by allying himself with Assyria's enemy, the Egyptians. You can read all about it there in 2 Kings 17. Now, that kind of political intrigue and dishonesty was considered normal in the Israel of Hosea's day. Those in authority cheated, lied, manipulated, tricked, and deceived. Whether it was at home or abroad, their motto was, do others before they do you. Nothing really changes, of course. Politics and leaders are exactly the same today. Can you believe a word that comes from a politician's lips? They'll say anything or do anything to stay in power. Things are just as bad in 21st century Britain as they were in 8th century uh, Israel. Commercially, they were dishonest. Politically, they were dishonest. But the very root of this was her relationship with God. She was religiously dishonest. Look at uh, chapter 11 and verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Uh, here uh, we're told that Israel had surrounded God with lies. 
in their worship. They profess to love him, to serve him, and to live for him. But in reality, they live for themselves. They serve themselves, and they love the beals to whom they had become attached. Their words in worship didn't square with their action. It's all uh, with their actions. It was all a sham, says God. It was meaningless and empty when it came uh, to the worship of God. In modern terms, it's like somebody coming on a Sunday morning and singing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise and then can come back for the evening service. And the person with expressions of deep sincerity who proclaims, take my heart, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee and never lifts one finger or one foot to help the work of the church and the spread of the gospel. Or the member who uh, says, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold, casually and carelessly throws a pound into the bag as it passes on a Sunday morning. Lies, 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 says Hosea. Your worship, says God, has surrounded me with lies, commercially, politically, and religiously. You're just a pack of deceitful, scheming liars. That's the situation that Hosea addressed. Look secondly then at the history that Hosea analyzed in verses 2 to 4. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke uh, with him or with us. Why don't you learn from your history, he says. Don't you remember your father, Jacob, your ancestor? He was a cheat. He was always working the angles. He was always plotting, scheming, swindling. But unlike you, he learned the futility of that kind of behavior. His life can be quite easily divided into two parts. In the womb, we're told he grabbed on to his brother's heel as if he was trying to prevent Esau from emerging from the womb first. And so he was given the name Jacob because that's what Jacob means, to grab at the heel. But that word in Semitic thought also meant was given to one who deceived because it's like walking up behind somebody and as they take a step forward and lift their heel, you pull at their heel, you trip them up and they fall to the ground. And as a young man, that intrauterine gesture proved to be prophetic by shrewdly exploiting his brother's greed and his father's failing eyesight. Jacob succeeded in stealing for himself both the blessing and the inheritance that should have gone to the firstborn, Esau. He was a, a grabber by name, and he was a grabber by nature. And where did all of that get him? Well, he ended up fleeing for his life in fear of his brother's retribution. All that scheming, clever though it was, uh, led him into slavery. Look at verse 12. Jacob fled to the land of Egypt. Uh, Aram, or sorry, Jacob fled to, to uh, the land of Aram. There Israel served. That word actually means slaved. Slave for a wife and a wife 
Uh, for a wife, uh, he guarded sheep. He, for a wife, he guarded sheep. Jacob fled uh, from his brother. He ended up in slavery. All his deceit and cunning and craftiness led him uh, into slavery. But then you remember when he was coming back to, to meet Esau, he had a strange nocturnal experience. So he had striven with God, he had striven with men, he had striven with his brother, he had fought with Laban, his uncle, he had fought with everybody. And then one night, this strange figure came and challenged him to a wrestling match, unarmed combat. And they, they wrestled all night, and as Jacob is wrestling with this man, he, he realizes that there's something different about him, there's something supernatural about him. Is he, a, is he an angel? Is he a manifestation of God? He, he didn't know. And then as the dawn is approaching, this, this strange personage touches his hip and dislocates the hip, rendering him powerless because a wrestler can't move if he has a dislocated hip. And so Jacob just clean, clings to this strange figure and says, uh, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the Lord says to him, you shall no longer be called Jacob. Uh, you shall be called Israel, for you have struggled with God and prevailed. You have struggled with God and men, and you have prevailed. All his life he had been struggling uh, against God's purposes and God's plans. He had been struggling with his family. He ended up in slavery. He fell out with his uncle, and he's now about to meet Esau, not knowing if Esau is going to slay him or not. But he clings to God, and uh, uh, this strange figure who we know to be the, the angel of the Lord, and he clings to him and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the Lord blesses him. And uh, that's the lesson. That's the lesson from uh, history. He was a plotter, a schemer, a grabber by name and by nature, uh, just like you are, says Hosea. And where did it land him? It landed him in uh, slavery. Uh, sin doesn't pay. Lying doesn't pay. Deceit doesn't pay. Remember the lesson of Jacob. Jacob fled and ended up as a tender of sheep. That's the history lesson. So the situation Hosea addressed, the history Hosea um, analyzed. Thirdly, then, the lesson that Hosea applied. What's the lesson? What uh, did um, uh, Hosea want Israel to grasp from this foray into their ancient history? It's the danger of trying to succeed without God. By relying on your own ingenuity, your own strength, your own dishonesty, your own scheming and plotting, it just doesn't work. It was only when Jacob had a personal encounter with God that he came to understand his own powerlessness and, uh, that the blessing came. Look at what he says in verse 8. Um, so, not but, as the NIV says, but so... So by the help of your God return. 
Hold fast or cling to love and justice and wait for the Lord always. Do you see, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, learn from Jacob what, what you must do. You must return to God. You must repent. You must hold fast to love and justice just as Jacob clinged to that nocturnal individual. So you must cling to righteousness and to love, to doing the right thing, and then you must wait on God, wait on God's time, wait for God to intervene, wait for God to deliver you, wait for God to work on your behalf. All your life you have struggled um, uh, and, and, and been uh, involved in all kinds of deceitful plots and schemes to secure your own future, but you need to return to God. You need to cling to what is right and true, and you need to wait upon God. Dishonesty and deceit, scheming and plotting, do not work. That's, that's the lesson from history. If you carry on this way, if you carry on the way you're going, you're going to places you don't want to go to, like, jo- uh, like Jacob going to Aram. Because sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. You need to learn, instead of working the angles and and, and trying to manipulate circumstances and trying to circumvent things, you need to learn to cling to what is true and right. You need to hold fast to love and justice and learn to wait for God and wait on His time and His purposes. You need As Psalm 46 says, you need to be still and know that He is God. You've got to wait on God. That's that's the lesson. So the situation that Hosea addressed, the people were out of control as far as dishonesty, working the angles. The history that Hosea analyzed, well, the, the history lesson is this, that Jacob had to learn the hard way that the only way to spiritual blessing and indeed to reconciliation with his brother is to cling to God and cast himself upon God and hold to God. Uh, That's the futility of dishonesty. Second lesson is the danger of prosperity. In the second half of the chapter, Hosea recalls another great historical event from Israel's history and uses it to teach the people of his day and generation. Now, let's approach the second lesson in the same way that we approached the first lesson with the situation that Hosea addressed. The spiritual problem that Israel was condemned for in the second half of the chapter is confusing material prosperity with spiritual health. You see it there in verse 8. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. As we have noticed in previous studies, although things had declined spiritually within Israel, materially and economically, they were doing much better. Um, 
Financially, she was prospering. Her GDP was increasing. Inflation was declining. The economy was booming. That elusive feel-good factor was in place within the nation. The problem was that, spiritually speaking, the nation was going down the tubes, but the people of Israel confused economic success with the blessing of God. Look at the end of verse 8 again. In all my labors, they, do you notice that? They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Now, that they is intriguing. We must ask ourselves, who are the they? They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Who is Israel boasting about when uh, he says, they, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Well, who is confronting the nation? Who is calling the nation to repentance? Who is condemning the nation for her dishonesty commercially, politically, and religiously? It was, of course, these two messengers of God sent by God to call the people to repentance, Amos and Hosea. They are the they of verse 8, God's spokesman to Israel, the two prophets of God, Amos and Hosea. They came to the nation of Israel warning about moral corruption and spiritual declension and the impending judgment of God. But the people uh, didn't listen. They didn't repent. They didn't seek after God. They reasoned. Why should we take any notice of those two prophets? Because economically, materially, God is blessing us. We're very comfortable. They, these prophets, can't find any fault in us. God must be pleased with us. After all, He has given all this to us. They reasoned, in all my labors, the NIV says, in all my wealth, the Christian Standard Bible renders it, in all my earnings, they will not find fault in me. I'm wealthy. I've accumulated riches. I'm comfortable. Who are they? Who do they think they are? Amos and Hosea telling me that I'm out of out of touch with God, and I'm living in a way that is unacceptable to God. Could people of the 21st century be so deluded as this today to think that you are doing well spiritually if you're doing well materially? Now, we might not make that connection uh, in our heads so obviously and so crassly, that He must be pleased with us because of the things that He has given with us. I don't think anybody but these health, wealth, and prosperity dunderheads would make that, that connection so directly and so strongly. But it is nevertheless true that so often material prosperity blinds us to spiritual reality, that we don't see our true condition. We are blind to it because we, are, we, we think we're comfortable. We can't see our failures because we're, we're, we're just um, doing very well, thank you very much. And we confuse things uh, with truth and wealth with the Word and a new car with new life, forgiveness uh, with a fortune. Wealth and spiritual health are so often inversely proportioned to each other. Material possessions can so often desensitize us to spiritual need. That was the situation that Hosea faced, that they, they confused material prosperity with spiritual prosperity. So that brings us to our second point, the uh, history that Hosea analyzed. 
Again, in verses 9 to 13, Hosea recalls the history of Israel, but this time he focuses upon the great act of deliverance when God delivered uh, Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Look at verses uh, 9 to 10. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will make you dwell in tents as in the day of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets give parables. Hosea reminded them of the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles when once a year they went out to uh, live in the fields for a week in a little makeshift shelter. The children absolutely loved it. It was equivalent to our Christmas. This was to remind them that when the people left Egypt, they had no permanent home and no permanent homeland. They were destitute refugees. At that time, Hosea says, you had absolutely nothing, yet there was no people on earth so singularly blessed as you. And here's the punchline. Material possessions had nothing to do with it. They came out of Egypt as a a group of of poverty-stricken refugees, but poor as they were, they were rich spiritually. They weren't perfect, as even a casual reading of Exodus would tell us, but they had the Word of God in abundance, and they listened and responded to the Word of God. Look at verse 10. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. The Word of God was multiplied in those days. There was a superabundance of the Word of God. I multiplied the Word of God to you. Do you remember Moses, asked Hosea? Do you remember the great leadership that he gave? Look at verse 13. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet uh, uh, he, he guarded, or he preserved, or he shepherded. Moses wasn't simply a good leader that led you out of Egypt into uh, the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. He was a prophet who brought the Word of God to you, who proclaimed the Word of God to you. Poor as that generation was, they had this in their favor that they listened to and responded to the Word of God. But the people of Hosea's day, because of this connection, this false connection that they made between material prosperity and spiritual blessings took not a blind bit of notice of the two prophets that God had sent to them. Amos and Hosea's ministry was ignored at best and rejected at worst. All their material wealth and their comfortable living led them to conclude that The ministry of Amos and Hosea was irrelevant to them. Verse 8 again, Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have um, uh, wealth. I've found wealth for myself in all my labors. They, who's the they? Amos and Hosea, they cannot find in me iniquity or, or sin. And Hosea says, Do you not remember your history? When the people came out of Egypt, they were as poor as church mice. They had nothing materially, 
but spiritually they were rich because they had the Word of God. They had the prophets uh, of God who, who spoke to them through parables. And they were led by a man who himself was a prophet, who was guarding them and protecting them and leading them by the Word of God. That's, that's the lesson. Your spiritual condition is not to be measured by your material prosperity, but by your responsiveness to the Word of God. And in fact, Israel's rejection of the Word of God would lead ultimately to the judgment of God. That's what he's saying. The history Hosea analyzed. So, the second history lesson, the situation Hosea addresses, they confused material prosperity with spiritual blessing. The history lesson, don't you, don't you remember Moses? Time of Moses, they had nothing but they had a superabundance of the Word of God, and they heard and responded to the Word of God. And the last thing I want you to notice is the lesson that Hosea applied. What's the main lesson in this history lesson that Hosea wants the people to grasp? If you reject the Word of God, you're not in a good place spiritually, no matter how comfortable you feel no matter how comfortable you feel. In verse 11, he says, If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. The NIV translates that as a future tense. Their altars will be like piles of stone, but it's not a future tense. It's a present tense. You see all those altars, those two principal altars at Gilgal and Gilead. They're just, they're just a pile of stones. You offer sacrifices on them, but they're, they're nothing. They're a pile of stones. God doesn't regard anything that happens there. And those two shrines were at opposite ends of the country, so it may be that he's, he's talking about all the altars in Israel. He says they're, they're useless. They're, they're nothing. They come to nothing. They're a pile of stones because... You have rejected the Word of God. Utterly useless because you have rejected the Word of God. And that's the, the lesson that, uh, that the people of Hosea's generation needed to, to learn. That if you reject the Word of God, if you reject the ministry of the Word of God, if you separate the Word of God from the worship of God, you provoke the judgment of God. And all that is useless. The spiritual temperature of the people of God is not to be measured in their material prosperity, nor by their religious activities, activity, because these altars were very busy but by one's openness to and receptiveness of the Word of God. The times of greatest blessing among the people of God is when the Word of God is valued, when the Word of God is taken seriously, when the God, Word of God is implement, implemented. And that wasn't the case in the days of Amos or Hosea. In fact, Amos prophesies a famine of the Word of God. But this would be a self-inflicted and self-perpetuated famine because the people reject the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God was taken away from them. 
What a lesson from history there is for us in that. Strong churches are built on strong preaching. From Moses to Hosea, from Paul to John, from Augustine to Calvin, from Whitfield to Spurgeon, from Lloyd-Jones to R.C. Sproul, the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God is the key to the blessing of the people of God. To reject the Word of God personally or collectively is to invite the judgment of God. Robert Murray McShane says, the church who despises preaching, God will despise her. So, let me ask you then, if you're a Christian, when when you're reading the Bible or you come to church and God puts his finger on a particular sin or flaw or shortcoming, a particular thing that needs to be dealt with that you're reluctant to deal with and you're resistant and you're saying, well, look, I'm very comfortable. I'm just happy in my own little shrunken world. I can carry on the way that I want. Hosea would tell us that's dangerous, dangerous. Learn from your history. What happened to the people of God? They were carried into captivity in, uh, in, by Assyria and their worship was rendered useless. Such an important lesson for us as a church there that we need to be uh, word-centered and word-driven. The Word of God needs to be central to the life of, of our church. Graham Scroggy, when he went to Charlotte Chapel, he said to the deacons, he says, you can either have my head or my feet. You can either have me employed in visitation all of the time or you can release me to study the Word of God so that I feed the people by the Word of God. Now, I don't think it's an either-or. It's, it's both. But if you restrict the time that a, a pastor has to study, you're, you're, you're revealing in your heart an attitude to the preaching of the Word of God. What other is a lesson there is for non-Christians? In the New Testament, we read of a man who died and went to hell and was filled with remorse, and he begged Abraham, uh, who he could see, to send back uh, someone back to warn his brothers, like some character from Dickens' Christmas Carol. He was quite sure that if there was this visitation, this ghostly visitation, shaking his shackles, that his brothers would be brought to repentance. And you know what Abraham said? He said, No, it can't be done. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They have a Bible. Jesus was convinced that the Bible was enough to work repentance, to bring men and women to faith in Jesus Christ. If men and women won't repent in response to the Word of God, no ghost clanking his chains coming from the past will provoke repentance. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God that must be listened to and responded to. So when you hear that the wages of sin is death, that terrifies you. But that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a magnetic attraction in that because you want that life and you're, you're drawn to that life and you're drawn to Jesus, the only one who can give that life to you. That's why the Bible says, today if you hear His voice, Harden not your heart. Two history lessons, the situation that Hosea addressed, they were just skiving, dishonest, plotting schemers. There were people who confused material prosperity with spiritual health. 
the history lesson that Hosea gave, the history that Hosea analyzed. Jacob, twister by name and nature, but he came to realize that his only hope was clinging to God. Moses, time of Moses, the people of God had nothing, but they had the Word of God multiplied to them. What an important lesson that is. The lessons that Hosea applies. Stop fighting. You know James Young? Maybe you shouldn't quote him. None of the younger people will remember him, but he used to always end his sessions. My father and mother liked him. Stop your fight. Stop fighting with God. Put your weapons down and trust in Him. No surrender. You need to surrender. You need to surrender to His love and to His grace, to His kindness. Surrender to the offer of the gospel. You need to surrender. Stop fighting. And whatever you do, do not neglect or reject the Word of God because it's the Word of God that brings life. Amen.